we are experiencing what I call the death rattle of white Christian America. And it is not going quietly into that dark night. It is fighting as it fades. And, you know, that fight gets ugly. When a wounded animal gets put in a corner, it's pretty dangerous. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I have another great guest for you today. He's Robert P. Jones, the CEO and founder of Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI, and a leading scholar of religion and politics. He's the author of The End of White Christian America and another book, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. Robert has great familiarity with this subject, and we had a really good conversation about his path to starting PRRI and writing these books, and what he has to say about the changes going on with religion and politics in our country. It's an important part of understanding today's America. You'll want to listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Robert P. Jones of PRRI. Hey, podcast listeners, do you like learning more about progressive politics? Then you're going to love Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a race-conscious podcast about politics. Join Steve for a conversation that is unapologetic about making clear that the only way Democrats can win is by running towards issues related to race and social justice. Guests have included Stacey Abrams, Elizabeth Warren, Beto O'Rourke, and Michael Tubbs. Fortune Magazine calls it the smartest podcast on race we've found in ages. To listen, visit democracyincolor.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. Robert, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. So I'm Robert P. Jones. I'm the CEO and founder at Public Religion Research Institute. That's P-R-R-I. We are a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization uh, that does research at the intersection of religion, culture, and politics. I'm also the author of uh, several books. The last two are The End of White Christian America, published in 2016, and White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity that was published in 2020. Where'd you grow up? A religious background? Yeah. So uh, I'm from the South. I grew up uh, mostly in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I grew up a Southern Baptist, very much uh, very active in Southern Baptist churches. I have a degree. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in computer science and math, It's fr- but it's also from a Baptist college, Mississippi College. Uh, Then I went to seminary, a Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and then uh, did my PhD work at Emory uh, University um, in Atlanta. Uh, But my family goes back six generations uh, into Macon, Georgia, on both sides of my family. So deep, deep roots in in the middle Georgia as well. And roots in slavery, how does the family fit into that world at that yeah. time? Well, you know, so our, our family history of how we get to Georgia is actually, you know, it's quite far back. And we were among the first, our, our family uh, on my mother's side is when I can document the most, was one of the early people of European descent coming down to Georgia from Virginia. Uh, this happened around the turn uh, of, from the 1700s to the 1800s. 
when essentially Native Americans were being uh, forcibly removed from middle Georgia, shipped off on the Trail of Tears toward Texas, Oklahoma, uh, and other places further west. And as they removed Native Americans from those lands, the government was dividing up those into 200-acre parcels um, and handing them out to people of European descent who agreed to come down and doing that via land lotteries. Um, And so my family had their name in the hat and won these land lotteries and uh, came down and received uh, several of these 200-acre plots, various portions of the family, and brought enslaved people with them when they came there. I actually have, uh, when I was doing work on the last book, White Too Long, I did a deeper dive in the genealogy of my own family. And I had always heard these stories that our family had owned slaves, but I didn't really know many details about it. But thanks to kind of modern genealogy tools, I was able to actually pull up digitized records of state settlements um, and one of the most stunning uh, that I came across was uh, from uh, is my sixth great uncle. Uh, his name was Pleasant Moon, um, and it was an estate settlement. And he was not exactly a wealthy man in, in today's dollars. His estate, like his earthly earthly goods, um, actually the the phrase they used was earthly goods and chattels was the title at the top of the document. And it was in today's money about fifty thousand dollars, right? So it listed things like. One feather bed, one bay mare, you know, six head of sheep, uh, a gun, like it listed like everything in the household. And on that list were actually four human beings, so four enslaved people. And to me, that was striking because even for someone who was, you know, just a little bit above subsistence farming, this was not the gone with the wind plantation, right? Um, that even at that level, which we talked about today is probably working class, um, you know, farmers, that they enslaved four human beings. And if you add, they put monetary values on everything, including these enslaved people. And if you add up the, the, um, the totals of the enslaved people, they made up about 70% of the assets of my sixth great uncle's uh, estate. So a very, very vivid picture of that. And, and um, you know, what's I think remarkable that the date on that document is 1815, but I have another piece of uh, family memorabilia that's also dated 1815 in my possession. That is a family Bible uh, that came down through my mother's side, passed down, actually mother to daughter. I'm the first non-female to actually ha- um, have it. So here we are, this juxtaposition of this treasured family Bible. It's the only thing in my mom's family that got passed down. I don't have a single other thing. This is very treasured document that lists marriages, births, deaths, et cetera, including the name of several Baptist ministers uh, in the family down down the way. And these were the same people, right? People who enslaved others and yet followed Christianity. And that one of the most treasured things they had to pass down to the next generation was a family Bible. So what was your, the family you grew up in, what was their attitude to sort of that nexus of religion, politics, and race? Yeah, well, a pretty apolitical uh, family growing up. But, you know, one of the things my parents did, and I think that has been a great gift to me has given me any critical distance um, uh, around race and religion and particularly around whiteness and white supremacy is that they they really did decide to be um, the generation that kind of broke the chain in terms of just all of the kind of language that you would hear at the time, you know, the N-word, racist jokes, derogatory comments, all of that stuff. I mean, they basically said, like, it, this is going to stop with us. And we would go back to Georgia and visit um, extended family would, I mean, they basically put the word out to the extended family, like, don't be telling those jokes, don't be using the N-word around our kids. We're not going to follow that path. Um, so I, I owe them a, really a great debt for helping 
I think my siblings and I just get any critical distance um, on that. I think it's one of the toughest things is to kind of get outside of it and look back in a little bit. Why did you choose then a religious college and the path of religious education? Yeah. Well, I mean, what's interesting about it, so so they they did draw that line uh, on on strictly speaking racial things, but I think none of us made the connections between how that had been embedded really in our faith. That was the the thing. So, you know, I grew up inside this uh, entirely white, you know, Baptist church uh, in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, and this, and I was, I was that kid. It was at church like, five, you know, five days a week. And in a Baptist church, you can do that. You can go to church five days a week and all through the youth group and everything. I mean, I was really in it and it was remarkable, you know, looking back on it as an adult, um, you know, not a single sermon on race, uh, not a single Sunday school lesson uh, about racial justice. Just one stark example, Mississippi, as you and your listeners probably know, I mean, drug their feet. Um, every way they could to refuse to integrate the public schools. Um, and in fact, they successfully did that for about two decades after Brown v. Board of Education. So far along that I remember my elementary school, like the first African-American kids showing up at my all-white elementary school. And what's striking about that, though, is that you would think that um, something like the church would have something to say about that, to help us kids understand what in the world was happening. Utter silence on that. So it was just something that was kind of uh, completely uh, disconnected from this kind of broader narrative of racial justice and the f- kind of collapse of Jim Crow and, and that form of white supremacy, but it just wasn't spoken of. Even though the church and church teachings were funding much of that thought, it certainly wasn't directly, it was just a great conspiracy of silence inside those walls. When you were at the seminary and getting your PhD in religion, was race uh, something that was the then part of the religious education? Overall, um, the answer to that would be no. Um, but there were a couple of professors that I said that kind of really began to, um, you know, expose me to material that began to kind of put a little crack in that edifice and that cone of silence um, out there. Um, and, and in particular, and I remember it wasn't until I was in seminary and in a Baptist history class at that seminary um, that. I had a Baptist history professor who was the first one ever in my life to explain that the origins of the Southern Baptist Convention, and indeed that word Southern in Southern Baptist Convention, wasn't just a geographic descriptor, right? But that it was actually uh, describing an allegiance with the Confederacy um, and the fact that it predated the Confederacy uh, and that it was a split North and South um, over the issue of slavery. And essentially, it was about whether someone could be appointed as a missionary who enslaved other people. And Baptists in the North said no, and Baptists in the South said, of course. Uh, And that was the rift, and they formed this new thing called the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845 um, uh, so that people could be appointed as clergy and missionaries who also enslaved uh, other people. But it wasn't until I was 20 and sitting in a seminary class that I even learned that about the origins of the denomination I'd spent my entire life in. I grew up a, a secular Jew in Boulder, Colorado. Probably can't be <laughs> terribly much different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a religious education of any sort was is kind of an outlandish idea to me, to be honest. What did you take from that whole path through a PhD that you find really valuable? No, that's a great question. Um, you know, so I, 
I think the way I described it is that at, at seminary, um, because it was inside of that world, it was still inside that Southern Baptist world, there were just very few professors that would give you that other side. So I had also a systematic theology professor named Jeff Poole, who uh, exposed us to Black liberation theology, right? That was something that was nowhere on the radar, you know, growing up. <laughs> uh, so reading James Cone and um, Howard Thurman and, and folks that had a very different view of Christianity, right? And a, and a critique of white Christianity. And even King, right? I mean, you know, I, I had been exposed to almost no, nothing other than the kind of, you know, thumbnail thing you get on Martin Luther King Day, which by the way, in Mississippi is still celebrated in conjunction with Robert E. Lee's birthday. Uh, got put on the calendar in Mississippi on purpose like that. Um, uh, so, you know, there just wasn't much at all. And I, I would say that one of the great uh, things sort of going to, to Emory University, where there was a much broader exposure uh, and very intentional, you know, uh, learning about the African-American church, its tradition of uh, liberation theology and all of that, that really opened up my eyes. And what it ele- enabled me to do is to continue this thing that I think my parents had begun by kind of just creating a little bit of space there. But the work particularly at, at Emory um, enabled me to really step back and look at this thing that I had inherited and to kind of begin a more, I think, deliberate journey of kind of interrogating it, right? And thinking about, okay, well, what part of this tradition, you know, do I really want to hang on to? And what part of this tradition is really corrupt and entangled with white supremacy? And do I need to, you know, jettison? And it's been, you know, really a decades-long journey sorting that out, uh, to be honest. How did you fit yourself into partisan politics in the South in those years. I mean, it was the finishing up of the migration of white folks from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, right? Had started well before there, but it is mostly done, um, not entirely. How did you fit yourself into that and what did you observe? Uh, You know, I I fit myself into it uh, fairly typically as a white, straight, Baptist guy would. That is that the sort of knee-jerk reaction was that you were a Republican. I mean, that was just the assumption uh, given there. So, you know, and you're right that there's a just documentable migration. You know, once the Democratic Party becomes identified as a party of civil rights in the 1960s, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, there's a steady, yeah, uh, you know, what you might just call a white Christian flight from the Democratic Party uh, to the Republican Party that basically uh, gets connected with Reagan. So I was in high school in the 80s, uh, right? Uh, and then into college uh, in the late 80s, uh, early 80s in high school, late 80s. Um, so those Reagan years. In high school, uh, I participated in youth government and the Mississippi Youth Legislature Program, for example. I w- ran as a Republican for the governorship. Uh, um, and as, interestingly enough, I ran against a guy who I'm still uh, friends with today, Eddie Gloud, uh, who is a um, author and uh, professor at Princeton, it's a great book that he just you know wrote a couple of years ago um, uh, called Begin Again about James Baldwin. But I ran against him in 1985 uh, for governor. He was the African American Democrat. I was the Republican uh, white guy, uh, and, uh, and and I lost. I should say that I lost uh, quite dramatically um, in, that, in that election. And he became the first African American elected as as governor of the Mississippi Youth Legislature um, that year. And then through college, um, you know, I, I really wasn't that politically active, but I remember helping out a friend of mine stuffing envelopes for Trent Lott in college, uh, as because he was in the dorm room next to me doing that and asked for some help. I think that's 
kind of by default. And it really wasn't until um, really till seminary and, and in my 20s that, again, I began to get, you know, some some sense of kind of rethinking some of those just default assumptions about being white and Christian and Republican. It's funny. Embarrassingly, the first time I saw Eddie Glaude's name was on the bookshelf behind Trevor Noah on the Daily Show. I was like, I wonder who that is. And I looked it up. You ended up at the People for American Way, which is a liberal organization. What was the path to that? My first gig out of grad school, I taught at Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri, taught in the religious studies program. That's what my doctoral work was in. Taught courses, you know, intro to religion, but also religion and politics courses. Um, But I really found that I really wanted to put the work on the ground a little more um, and to move a little faster than the academic world can sometimes move. Um, So I began to look kind of for some opportunities, um, you know, maybe in DC and in the think tank world um, and and had this opportunity to begin a thing called the Center for American Values and Public Life at People for the American Way Foundation. Um, Did that for about a year and a half and then realized that I I was going to be better served long term and could do a much broader set of things by starting my own organization uh, to do that that would be yeah, more nonpartisan, nonprofit, uh, all of that. So then began that in 2009. Yeah, what's the founding story for that? What's uh, What were you thinking about and what were you trying to build? Well, I mean, honestly, it, it was one of those things where um, a little light bulb went off uh, because I was, so I, I was at People's Third American Way for about a year and a half. And then I did some just contract work. I, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I wanted to do something uh, a little more independent. So I, w- I was doing for various think tanks, just six-month contract, research papers, that kind of thing. And I just began to run into these situations where I would say, oh, well, I wonder what uh, this, this statistic is. And it turns out that nobody had it. Pew didn't have it. Gallup didn't have it. Like the other kind of main places you would go to, that happened enough that finally a little light bulb went off and said, oh, you know, there's actually an opening here. There's a knowledge gap here that could be filled. And so that really, it was just that little insight. And then uh, making the rounds with some funders to get enough seed money to give it a shot that we kicked it off in 2009. And really our purpose was to help journalists. So still today, um, journalists are kind of our primary audience of kind of getting material out to them to help them write better stories. But it was often about um, getting past the stereotypes, getting hard numbers around assumptions. Sometimes they're things that um, were surprising. Sometimes they were things that confirmed, but helping them to have a good set of numbers and and um, and really on the moment. So trying to kind of keep up with the news cycle and ask a lot of new questions. Always the tensions in public opinion research is, you know, how long do you track a trend? And then when do you change the question if the terrain changes a little bit? And, you know, when you have a 10-year trend line, it's really um, uh, hard not to just keep asking that question because you have a trend. And we obviously care a lot about trends at PRI, but we, we made a commitment early on that if the debate moved, our questions would move, um, even if we had to break, break a trend. I think that's been one of the things that has kind of marked us as a little more distinct at this kind of religion, culture, and politics intersection is we just try to stay on top of where the actual discussions are, how the language is changing so that we can uh, keep our finger on the pulse. I've talked to a lot of people who are sort of in the business of public opinion research. How has this niche been for you as a business? It's been a good one. I think the instincts were right that there was enough of a niche here. You know, we're now in our 13th year, um, you know, in operation. It's been, as all businesses go, you go through business cycles of uh, kind of ups and downs and kind of, you know, plateaus and then other growth. It's been a really gratifying 
you know, thing last year we had um, a, a PR research feature, for example, in uh, a little over 5,000 uh, earned media stories last year, you know, from and really across the board. Um, and so I you know, count that a great success and kind of as a, um, a testimony to the need that's still, that's still out there. How big of an institution is it now? So we have about a $3 million budget. Um, and it's a, it's a fairly small staff. I mean, a lot of that money is really spent on the research. of staff of full time staff of seven, um, and a couple of consultants filling uh, various roles. So it's a fairly boutique operation still. Is that just like snapshot polls, or is it like do panels? What are sort of the ways that you're tracking these trends? Yeah, well, we, we interview about a hundred thousand people a year, um, and we do that through various. Um, means most of them are snapshot polls where it's a kind of fresh sample of people, snapshot in time. Our flagship survey is called the American Values Survey. We do that every fall in partnership with the Brookings Institution with E.J. Dion and Bill Galston um, in the Governance Studies program there. We've been doing that every year since 2009. Uh, so we have kind of a very long you know, trend and tracking things there, but it is fresh sample. Uh, we've done a few panel surveys where we're actually re-interviewing the same people, usually over a two or three year period. Uh, along the way. And then the other kind of big thing we've done is to track uh, religious demographic changes over time. There we're interviewing for just for demographic purposes, you know, somewhere between 50 and 100,000 people a year just on demographics. And then um, in 2020, we put out what we call the 2020 Census of American Religion. Uh, and it was the first time that we've had a um, down to the county level map of uh, religious identification in the U.S. That was a um, really a seven-year, uh, multi-million-dollar, you know, five hundred thousand interview project. It was a, a really major endeavor, and that we're really proud of. Um, that it, it's got, um, you know, you can go to any county in the country, and you could see the religious uh, breakdown of you know, every county, more than three thousand counties um, in the country. So, what's been happening since two thousand nine in the area that you track? What are the most significant changes? Yeah. Well, the demographics, uh, you know, have been quite remarkable. And you typically, you know, you see demographic changes creep along. Um, but uh, it really, we've seen quite a sea change just, you know, in this last you know decade or so, probably the most kind of notable ones really and, and uh, phenomenal ones are uh, two things that are really related to one another. One is uh, the decline of white Christian uh, populations in, in the country, uh, both Protestant and Catholic, and the upswing of uh, people who claim no religious affiliation. And, and those are not, as I said, they're related. Right? As people have left uh, white Christian congregations, they are moving into this group of people who are unaffiliated. And just to put some numbers on that, if we go kind of back to the beginning of when we were tracking data, the country was uh, pretty comfortably 54% majority white and Christian. That number today is 44% white and Christian. So decline of 10 points and significantly kind of crossing the sea change from being a majority white Christian country, demographically speaking, to one that's no longer majority white Christian country. We go back to the number of unaffiliated folks have nearly doubled. Um, today, it was you know 12 to 15% um, you know, a decade ago, and today it's a quarter of the country that claims no religious affiliation whatsoever. And, and that, that's been both from attrition from, from white Christian groups mostly, but it's also been generated by young people just not affiliating. Um, so today, if you look at younger people, it's nearly four in 10 younger people under the age of 30, for example, that claim 
uh, no religious affiliation. So I think that's been sort of one big thing. And then the other thing I would note is this, um, the ways in which the two political parties' religious identities have shifted um, over time. So we basically have seen increasingly the Republican Party be a kind of party of, of white Christians. In, in, in fact, even today, the Republican Party is about 70% white and Christian. The Democratic Party is only about 30% white and Christian. And a decade ago, those weren't quite as dramatic. So they've just been kind of separating a little more. And so watching the kind of partisan polarization that's run through religious communities has been quite notable as well. Uh, I talked to Kristen DeMay uh, prior to talking to you, and she sort of tracks the movement to the right in politics among evangelicals, among other moves that they're making. How much do you pick up that in what you're surveying, if at all? Yeah, uh, well, you can certainly see it. Um, I mean, it, it's not that long ago. We have to go back to find, you know, uh, again, we talked about this migration of white evangelicals from from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And you can just see that tracking in their voting patterns. And it's worth noting, just in the last two elections in uh, 2016, white evangelicals, for example, vote 81% for Trump, um, at, for Donald Trump. And in 2020, uh, it, it actually ticked up a few points, 84%. Uh, for Trump, just when you think it couldn't get much higher, um, it actually goes up uh, from 2016 uh, to 2020. And you can certainly see that um, over time, this kind of partisan lock and loyalty, particularly among white evangelical uh, Protestants. But uh, the other piece of this is that we're seeing similar movements uh, among conservative white Catholics and even conservative mainline Protestant denominations, and that there's a kind of coalescing across those things, and that things like whiteness uh, white racial identity are becoming more salient among those groups over time as they're kind of uh, bonding together. And I think that's another message that a generation ago, um, the walls between kind of being Protestant and Catholic were much higher. You know, if you uh, were a good Baptist boy, for example, and you brought home a Catholic girl, I mean, that would be a problem in many evangelical circles. And I think it's becoming less so over time. And the thing that has eroded those that sounds like on the one hand, oh, well, that's kind of a good thing for pluralism and democracy. Uh, but one of the things that's been eroding those religious boundaries has been the political partisan polarization. So it's like, oh, well, if you're a Republican, you're one of us. Come on over, Catholic or no. Uh, right. And so it's, it's, it's a sort of a mixed bag uh, that we've been seeing, I think, in the way that that dynamic works. But you can clearly track just this sort of like continued rightward um, and not just Republican, but even like kind of Trump loyalty that we've seen in the last, you know, five years, uh, for example, um, is it's fairly dramatic. Your the book you mentioned that you came out in 2016, uh, End of White Christian America. Tell me about that book. I did not read that one. Yeah, so that book was really um, prompted by this statistic that I gave you earlier that the country had passed from being majority white and Christian to one that was no longer majority went in Christian. Even in 2016, the number was 54% to 47%. So we kind of crossed that threshold. And I realized there was a lot of, of you know, people writing about the census projections that at that time were something like the country would be majority non-white by 2040, but that nobody was really writing about this more cultural shift this, and this kind of white Christian identity. And I, I think that that's something that's still not fully understood. I think Kristen's done a great job of kind of putting a lens on this too, but this uh, this sense of you know white Christian nationalism and this idea that America 
was designed to be, you know, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country. That's really its origins and it's its divinely ordained future is the way the, you know, the argument uh, goes. Um, and, you know, Jews fit fairly uncomfortably into that paradigm. Uh, Catholics fit fairly uncomfortably historically in that paradigm. Um, but I think it's worth remembering, for example, you know, that the, the second, you know, um, kind of rise of the KKK in the early part of the 20th century, I think people think about them as an anti-Black organization primarily, and they think of them as burning crosses in African-American yards or civil rights white civil rights workers' yards. Um, but I think they forget that it wasn't just an anti-Black vision. It was a white Protestant vision, uh, and that's why they were anti-Catholic and anti-Jewish um, as well, right? Anti-Semitic. Uh, and, and, and I think that, unfortunately, is still uh, alive and well, no pun intended, but just, just under the hood, you know, here in many of the kind of present manifestations of it, that this lament, um, and I think even, you know, what it kind of tapped in a coded way and, and really only thinly veiled way, the Make America Great Again slogan, right? That again, piece on the end of it is the telling part of it, in fact, is the most powerful part of it, this nostalgia for a kind of white Christian America, you know, where white Christians were the demographic majority, the most powerful cultural force in the country, um, and this, this, you know, vision of going back to the 1950s, pre-Brown v. Board of Education. And one of the most telling stats in, in, in that book, The End of White Christian America, was actually a question about the 1950s. And we asked in a big national survey, which do you think is closer to your view? The question was, um, do you think that American and American way of life has changed for the better or changed for the worse since the 1950s? Uh, and it turns out the country was evenly divided on that question. We first asked this in 2015, leading into the 2016 election. Countries evenly divided. The two political parties are mirror images of one another. Two-thirds of Republicans think things have changed for the worse. Two-thirds of Democrats think things have changed for the better. But no one thinks things have changed for the worse more than white evangelical Protestants. 75% of them say things have changed for the worst, you know, since the 1950s. So it is that I think that's the normative vision. And even the one, you know, America first kind of movement that we're still seeing today really is about that, that vision of the country. What was the response to that book? <laughs> it's my first trade book. Um, so the other books I'd written were, had been academic books. Um, so it was the first book for a popular audience. Um, uh, it was, it was certainly mixed, plenty of hate mail, plenty of nasty voicemails about being a traitor to my religion and my race. And those kinds of things um, were certainly there, but, but I think there was also um, I think some appreciation for naming something that had been a little amorphous, you know, and, and so the kind of visceral turn that our politics took with the rise of Donald Trump, um, uh, that, that things that had been unsaid were suddenly sayable from anti-Semitic remarks to kind of, you know, find people on both sides remarks after white supremacists shouting Jews will not replace us and other racist things in, in Charlottesville. I think that turn you know, was kind of representative of it. But I think naming what the perceived loss was, I think, was important. So I, so I think it's the one thing I'm, I'm, I think, most proud of with that book is that it, it did try to name this thing that, that people kept scratching their heads saying, what is going on? Like, why now? Why, why are we seeing all of this kind of reactionary nationalist uh, stuff, kind of ethno-religious nationalism? now. And I think one reason is because the country is actually changing. And for the first time in the country's history, 
um, it it was no longer true that that those people that white Christians made up a majority of, of, of the country. It did win uh, the Grawermeyer Award in religion um, uh, uh, two years later, which is the uh, sort of one of the bigger awards in the kind of religion religious studies uh, space. How did you personally respond to kind of the rise of Trump and you know his success in winning and the things that he did? You may have understood it better, I think, than than some of the rest of us, but how did you respond? Yeah, well, uh, so that book, you know, it was out in 2016, but you know the way the book schedules go, I I was using 2014 data. I turned it in in 2015, right before uh, Trump was even really on the scene. I'm kind of grateful for that, actually. It also meant for me that what it helped me see was that this um, kind of whirlwind that the that that the country got put into with Trump's presidency. Um, wasn't really of Trump's making, um, right? It, it was a stage that he walked onto. It had the right background, it had the right props, uh, and now he knew how to use them for sure and perform this role. Um, you know, I, I think with some skill and some instinct. But I think all of it was set, right? I mean, this is, is not. It was not. It was not a sort of uh, of Trump's making um, in a sense. It was something that Trump used to his advantage. I think during his presidency. So I think kind of remembering that and and that you know, writers like Baldwin, like King. I mean, we're always reminding us that you know there was this great uh, moral question of black equality that had never really fully been been answered by the country and and you know, here we are again, um, I think, as a result of it. So you had that book done, but how did you how did you personally think about him in that position of power? What were you thinking? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I was thinking that, um, you know, again, I, I think about this, uh, you know, famous quote by Lee Atwater. I don't know if you know it or not, but he in the 80s, he was kind of, kind of talking about how, you know, you couldn't say the N word anymore on the campaign trail. Um, even subtly, you had to kind of be more subtle about it. We had to talk about busing or states' rights or some or, other, or make an Willie Horton ad or something. That's right, right. Yeah. So there, and he was responsible for those. Um, he and Manafort and that whole uh, group um, were responsible for many of those ads. Um, and so, you know, it. I think it just kind of helped me see this kind of longer arc there, and that at the end of the day, this was, um, uh, you know, whether you're really Republican or Democrat. To me, what became clear is that it was a fundamentally anti-democratic response. You know, that, that was something not just, you know, a tool for a political party, but but a, a tool that could potentially undo undo the American democratic experiment. What made you uh, start to write "Why Too Long" and what was the purpose there? Yeah, there were a number of things. I mean, I kind of been on this journey. I think um, the end of white Christian America was clarifying in some ways. Um, but in terms of kind of the big demographic backdrop, um, uh, but I, I think also there were several events um, that I, I think really made me do more than think about it, but actually put pen to paper and say, this is the next you know thing I really need to work on. Uh, and, you know, it was really a combination of events. It was, um, you know, Dylan Roof and the killing of nine worshipers in Charleston uh, was kind of a wake up call, I think, for me and the country as well. Um, I've mentioned Charlottesville, um, you know, and a kind of failure of then President Trump to call out the white supremacists and kind of issue this, you know, good people on all sides uh, thing. And and the sense that whiteness um, and whiteness baptized in Christianity 
um, was going to be a, com- a, a, a force to be contended with um, in the country and in the struggle for our, our future. So I, I think it was really those things that made me realize, you know, that, okay, this is a world I know. It's a world I grew up in. Uh, it's a world I know as an academic and a researcher. And I maybe in some ways uniquely, you know, not uniquely, but, uh, you know, as in no one else has this position, but but that I, there's a set of tools that I have and a set of experiences that I have that maybe offer something that has something of a unique voice and a unique perspective on it. What's the thesis of the book? Well, it, it's really captured in the title and the title's White Too Long, which kind of is, you know, in the legacy of white supremacy and, and American Christianity. It really is about um, uh, making the case. Um, and, and it's it's broadly, uh, the, you know, the audience is a broad audience, but but it, its primary audience really is other white Christian people, um, and really having them take seriously the ways that um, it's sort of documenting uh, both historically and in contemporary life how a commitment to white supremacy is still with us today, and the ways that it has been embedded really in the DNA of Christian faith. Um, so it's really about unpacking not only the history, but I referred to it in the book as this unholy amalgamation of white supremacy and Christianity and how that, that mixture, uh, you know, is, is still, still very much present. When you read some of the stories that you tell about lynchings, I think it's easy to imagine that, that a lot of white Christians would think this is really in the past that would be very resistant to uh, feeling like their religion of love was culpable back then, which it was, and to accept that a lot of what happened then and what structured the institutions and the thoughts continues. What do you run into in terms of that kind of resistance? How do you explain to people what you've uh, argued and shown. Yeah. Well, I think you've characterized the resistance fairly well. Um, A real tendency to want to put it over there and back then. Just a couple things to say. One is, you know, this history is not ancient history. Uh, You know, I said, like, uh, I remember, like, I'm 53 years old, right? Um, And I remember the integration of my public school in the 1970s. This was 1976 before Mississippi got around to integrating its schools. My parents, you know, grew up in a completely segregated Macon, Georgia, like separate parks, pools, libraries, water fountains, you know, you name it. I mean, it was like completely segregated. That's just my parents. Like my father's father was born in 1898. Right. I mean, that's just not that far back there. One of the tools that I did bring to the new book was uh, contemporary public opinion uh, research. And, you know, one of the things that I, I found of a whole chapter, um, you know, uh, called mapping, where I map current public opinion. So not just history, but today. So I asked a whole series of questions um, uh, to kind of come up with this thing I called the racism index, which kind of measures a score of zero on the racism index of holding very few racist attitudes score of 10, holding many, um, and particularly on on issues of structural racism. When I scored that zero to 10, it's 15 different questions. So it's not just cherry picking one or two. Uh, They're all highly correlated to one another. And when you put them into a composite index score at zero to 10, uh, it's maybe not that surprising that my people, the white evangelicals in the South, 
scored eight out of 10 today. Uh, but what's I mean, more surprising is that white mainline Protestants, which are typically considered to be more liberal end of the white Protestant world, scored seven out of 10. And white Catholics who have their own history of being persecuted in the country also scored seven um, out of 10. Uh, and there's a bunch of other uh, research, too, that corroborates how those tendrils you know, move through history. And today um, is a, a great book called Deep Roots, a bunch of a group of Stanford and Harvard political scientists that um, actually looked at um, that you could still look at a correlation between slaveholding in 1860 and contemporary attitudes among whites that live in those counties today, right? So that the the counties that had the highest uh, slaveholding uh, proportions in 1860, uh, and you look at white people today, they are more likely to be conservative and Republican. They're more likely to oppose affirmative action and hold a whole range of other conservative racial attitudes, even with controlling for a whole bunch of other characteristics. It's a pretty robust you know, thing, both in just contemporary snapshot, these kind of longitudinal kinds of connections that you can make. And I guess the other thing to say is, you know, you can't honestly look at any city in America of any size and not see the history of redlining and segregation in those cities, that there's usually a railroad track, a river, a main thoroughfare, whites lived on one side, non-whites lived on the other, and that was enforced, you know, um, by history. And and the white parts of town were always the best, right? The non-whites parts of town were near industrial areas, flood zones, those kinds of things. And and you could still see that history. You have to, you know, you just be willfully ignorant to not see those patterns all around us, you know, even today. What do you think the prospects are for fixing this or putting us on the path to fixing it more than we have? I mean, there's obviously been a lot of efforts since the civil rights movement and before uh, history is not linear. We go forward, we have reaction, we go backwards. I feel like we're in a period of reaction. We've certainly uh, maybe put forward a lot more of the white supremacist attitudes publicly than we were for a while. I think Trump has been a piece of that, but not the only piece of it. Sometimes people will say by exposing it, it is more likely to give you a chance to to cure it. But I don't know. It, it, there's a real potential that we could go way backwards also. How do you see the possibilities going forward? Yeah. Um, well, exactly. So I was born in 1968. Um, so that's the purview I have personally. But you know, I can certainly say that to me, it seems like a very clear pattern. We elect our first African-American president. He's not a single term president, but a two term president. Um, so it's not a fluke, right? The country does it twice. And I think it's actually his reelection that sets off the alarm bells more than his election. I think because it meant it's not a fluke, we've actually moved to a place where the country would elect an African-American president twice. And it happens to be, coincidentally, during his tenure of president, that we go through this demographic change that we've been talking about, that the country moves from being majority white and Christian to no longer majority white and Christian during his presidency. So the things about challenging, you know, Trump challenging his his religion, challenging his birth certificate are all about making him like not American, right? Not properly American. So there's that backlash, the Tea Party backlash during his uh, term, which was not at all about economics. All the data suggests it was really racial backlash that was driving that movement more than it was any economic movement. 
then we have this this reaction, and I, and I think Trump is the reaction uh, to that, this kind of flight to, to Trump uh, that we saw. And I think the rise of this kind of ethno-religious, and it is ethno-religious, it's not just white nationalism, it's not just Christian nationalism, it's white Christian nationalism uh, that we're seeing. And that's what gives us this power, is this kind of combination of race and religion, and it's tying it to America, right? This idea that America is a white Christian country. And then we have, you know, this other reaction. We had the Black Lives Matter movement, this rupture with George Floyd. And now we're seeing another counter movement to that. So I think we are in a moment of reckoning, I think. And we're seeing uh, movement and counter movement, progress and pushback. Uh, I think that's actually right. And that's why I think, you know, when you read the news, it feels like whiplash, you know, um, in many ways. Um, some progress and then this kind of hard movement back. Uh, so I think we're just in this, we are in this bubble and this kind of hinge point of history where, um, you know, um, I described it in the end of white Christian America. I, I think I still, um, you know, still stand by this, that, that in many ways, you know, it's not determined which way it'll come, but we are experiencing, you know, what I call the death rattle of white Christian America. And it is not going quietly into that dark night. It is fighting as it fades. And I, I think that's really part of what we're we're seeing. And, you know, that fight gets ugly. When a wounded animal gets put in a corner, it's pretty dangerous. And I, I think that's part of what we're seeing. And while we're seeing things like violence, um, you know, not just violent rhetoric, but actual violence in our midst. Um, I will say that um, I'm actually a little more hopeful about all this than I was even when I turned in the manuscript to the book. Uh, and I do think I'm, I'm one who thinks that I'm, I'm hopeful when it's on the surface and we're actually fighting about what we're fighting about. Um, and, and we're having this big debate it can be healthy or unhealthy, but we're we're no longer pretending, right? That we're not talking about race. We're no longer pretending. We're not talking about this history, uh, and I, I think that's absolutely critical if we're really going to deal with it and and not just kick the can down the road and have our kids deal with it. If we could find some way, even if we could find some way to do that, it's a big country, and it's very hard as a person or person with an organization to have much impact. What do you kind of hope? will happen out of your work in this battle? One thing that does give me hope um, is, you know, since the book came out, I've talked to uh, nearly like 100 congregations. Most of them have contacted me saying, hey, we saw your book. We want to have this conversation. Can you just talk to us about how to get it going? Completely surprised to me. Like that didn't happen with the previous book. Um, so I think we're clearly in a new. Has that been progressive groups? You know, not, uh, no, not, not completely. No. I mean, it's been uh, Baptist, Nazarene, um, like a Nazarene seminary. Um, like, so it's been some surprising quarters. You know, I've been to Kentucky, I've been to, you know, New Orleans. Like, uh, so it's, it's not been all, you know, people up kind of, you know, good UCC and Unitarian people in New England. So that's, I think, been kind of heartening uh, about it. But but I, I think for, you know, white Christians, what I hope, um, and again, I kind of have a primary audience there um, of kind of addressing them, at least with the moral question, that I try to boil it down to saying, look, you know, white Christians have historically not done two things. We haven't told the truth and we haven't loved all our neighbors to make it like really, really simple. Um, and, you know, if we'll actually recommit ourselves to doing those two things, it will make the world of difference. Baldwin, uh, was a great quote from him where he, you know, he says, you know, if we could find the courage and the love to like basically do that work of telling the truth and loving all our neighbors, he says, we can end the racial nightmare, we can achieve our country, and we can change the history of the world. 
I'm not always an optimist, but I, I do think that if we could just basically get down to that kind of work uh, and, and do it at the local level, I think that's that's where it's not really happened at. We've in Christian circles, you know, we've issued press releases from the national denominational bodies and that kind of thing. And and if all you did is read the press releases from the 1960s, you would think that every white Christian was in every civil rights march that was out there, right? Because all the the press releases from the denominational bodies were uh, kind of lauding them, but you know, it didn't get down to the congregations uh, very much and, and local pastors. But I am I'm actually seeing some of that work being done at the local level with white churches partnering with African American churches and saying, like, keep us honest in this conversation. Like, we want to have this conversation, we want to kind of deal with our history, and want to do it in a way that you know, it it's 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 honest. I, I uh, honor people like you who are doing that work, and I. Appreciate it. I think it's really important. It doesn't feel to me as an outsider like that's the bulk of the direction. It feels to me like the movement is actually in the other direction. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah, I, I understand uh, You know why you would say that. And I certainly feel that on some days um, as well. The loudest, angriest voices right, are always those that are on the resistance side. I think that's it's hard to calibrate. But, you know, I'll just give you one example um, here that um, on the issue of critical race theory, right, this is the kind of rallying cry of kind of some of the pushback on the conservative Christian right and the kind of politicians that they support. We've done a number of surveys. And when we ask people, um, particularly young people, like, what do they want, right, their kids to learn about American history? What do they really want? And we give them choices. We want, the you know, this kind of America can, can do no wrong kind of thing, a kind of, you know, thinly described patriotic view of American history, uh, what makes America great? Uh, or do you want them to learn about not only what, you know, the good things, but some of the biggest mistakes the country has ever made? And overwhelmingly, the country is on that side, right? That's the history they really want um, our kids to know. But, you know, you can manufacture loud, angry people to show up at board meetings and get news coverage. And it feels like that's the majority, at least on that issue, at least right now, uh, the data would suggest otherwise, that that's not actually what people want for their kids. Robert, is there a question I haven't asked you that I should have? You know, nothing's coming to mind. We've covered a lot of a lot of ground. I appreciate uh, the, the breadth, actually. It's definitely been an honor to talk to you about it. Anything else you want to say? No, no, I appreciate you uh, kind of highlighting the work here. And, uh, and thanks for doing it. Thank you, too. That was Robert P. Jones. Robert is at PRRI.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.